0: In terms of people being worried about the data being used against them, I, I mean, I think that's that's real. We are partially trying to create more accountable organizations from top to bottom so that we're less unfair.
1: Well, hi, everybody. You're back on the Faculty Factory podcast, and I have the distinct privilege of looking at a very handsome man, the second podcaster ever on the Faculty Factory podcast, Dr. Dan Shapiro. Dan, hello.
0: Hello. So you know what this is like for me since I did your second podcast ever, and now you've had all these these incredible people on the podcast. I feel like that, you know, you were in homeroom with like four other people and I was one of them and like we went to the prom and now you've been off to New York and Paris and Los Angeles and you've come back home and like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, there's like a little local person I can talk to. That's what this is like.
1: You're so funny. This is uh, definitely a reunion tour for those of you who are new to the Faculty Factory podcast Dr. Dan was indeed our second episode ever on the Faculty Factory podcast because I actually he was the first one who was a successful interviewee, but I accidentally deleted Dr. Charlie Irvin, who was supposed to be the first. That's a long story. Anywho, three years ago, almost to the day, Dr. Shapiro came and talked to us about all the wonderful work he's doing in the office he built at Penn State. So this is kind of a reunion for a frequent flyer colleagues and friends who really have a heart and a passion and just something that we just can't even help ourselves from serving faculty and coming up with creative and innovative programs. Dan talked last time about these really cool, innovative recruiting strategies, and I got to be part of that uh, at the professional development conference way back in the day when we used to meet in person. Um, and he just did some really good stuff. And I I have, I can't tell you, Dan, how many pieces of paper here that I have notes from Dan Shapiro, GFA 2019, persuasion, mm. internal communication, don't throw people under the bus. Stay out of the weeds. Exude calm. You just always bring so much wisdom. And and when COVID hit, I remember listening to your session at the AAMC GFA that was online and how you talked about, you know, when there's not enough food at the table. You know, people are going to get angry. And that's kind of that metaphor of going home for a family reunion and if and resources for faculty and how they're just, you know, tough. And it's it's a really tough environment for our faculty these days. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make for you listening, everybody, Dan is just, he opens his mouth and really cool things come out of it. So I'm going to shut mine and have Dan tell you, first of all, three years ago, Let's tell everybody who you are, what you do at Penn State, what are your roles, what are your titles, and let's just talk about some interesting updates and wisdom and pearls and whatever.
0: Sure. So I'm the Vice Dean for Faculty and Administrative Affairs at Penn (laughs) State. And if you put that uh, title into an administrative translator, what comes out the other side is um, part middle school vice principal, part dean whisperer, and uh, part recruiter. (laughs) Um, I I think. And those are kind of the three major parts of this job. Um, Yeah, certainly we're we're seeing a lot more, you know, grumpy faculty, grumpy patients. And I think this is a really hard time to be a College of Medicine uh, faculty member. But what I want to I want to really focus on today um, is the use of of data, cultivating data where you are. And I want to tell you a really quick story. So I was recruited to Penn State from the University of Arizona to chair uh, the oldest humanities department in a college of medicine in the country, and and that department is um, multidisciplinary. We've got PhDs, MDs. It's really exciting, interesting work, and I I loved um, what the department was doing. And I was a chair, and so I went to all these chair meetings. And you know, there's 27 or 26 or 27 other institute directors and chairs, and I began to learn about administration and administrivia and leadership uh, across the, the you know complex. Academic Health Science Center that we, we lived in. And one of the things I noticed was that how, how chairs were viewed and often how the, re, the resources they could command and recruit um, to their units were partially and largely based on how well they managed um, larger meetings, executive, you know, when all the executives were, were together, were they liked, were they compelling, were they funny, but not actually based on data. Um, and so I began when I when I transitioned into the vice dean role. I began to do homework on how colleges of medicine use data, and certainly we're pretty sophisticated, somewhat around how we recruit um, students. Maybe less so how we recruit residents and using data and getting you know data for ACGME and LCME. But we're pretty bad at measuring ourselves across missions by unit um, compared to other industries. So if you look at mining, um, gaming, finance, um, insurance, all these other industries are rely really heavily on data and they're pretty sophisticated and we are not. So in February of 2017, um, recognizing this, I went to the data holders across missions. So the people who actually are the the nerdy backroom folks who are calculating data in in education, in medical education, in um, finance, um, in our faculty affairs office um, and in research. And I brought them together in a room. There were like eight of us. And I said and, and it was hard. First of all, it was hard to get everybody there. Cause they are like, Hey, you're not, you know, you, this is not my swim lane. <laughs> you know, they were clear, like, you're a different vice deed. Like, I don't report to you. Why, why am I having to come to this? So, so I got them all in the room uh, after, uh, you know, cajoling and, and begging and pleading. And I said, we are going to create radar. We're going to create radar so that Deans can have informed conversation with chairs and in, 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 to me, some of the most high stakes conversation in our academic health science center between the dean or the leader and the chairs, mm-hmm. because they set the stage for what we're going to hold folks accountable for, what we're aiming towards together. And um, that's where things get clarified. For example, not we're, we're not going to want every department to be a heavily... Um, heavily in education. We're not going to want every department to be a superstar research department, right? Like that doesn't make sense. You've got to deploy your people according to what their talents are and they cost different amounts. so and and they bring in different amounts and they have different tasks, right? Um, so uh, you want to distribute your accountability differently by mission. And the only way I knew to do that was to give both parties, both a chair and the dean or the, the executive leader, the same data. So I said, we're going to create radar for the college of medicine. And so by hand, we started assembling this one page dashboard. Um, it took us months to put it together, but eventually we got it. And so, and and now it's automated. Um, of course it's, you know, four or five years, it's almost five years later. Um, it took a tremendous amount of time and begging with it who were off you know, usually distracted by the electronic health record or, um, you know, the the system is buying hospitals. So it's hard to get their attention. But we finally have this thing automated so that for the first times, I am now watching charismatic, no matter how charismatic a chair is or non-charismatic, there's a data-based conversation happening between the the dean and and those leaders. And I'm going to tell you why this is particularly important for someone who cares about faculty because there are out in our institutions, black holes of academic death. These are places faculty go to die, right? They they go, they get worked to death in one mission or another, and they don't get a chance to do the things they love. And they don't necessarily get a chance to do the things that help them get promoted. So using this, one of the, one of our calculations was the number of faculty who are eligible by just based on the number of years they've been with us to have gone up for promotion under the, the number that actually went up for promotion. So, for example, if you have a department where you have, a, you know, 20 assistant professors who have been there for 11 years, no matter what your track system is and none of them have gotten promoted, right, by percentage, you know you've got a problem. Like in general, you should see at least Fifteen or twenty percent of them getting promoted every year. Like they should be rolling in, reaching the right level, you know, or more than that. And ideally, all of them ultimately should get promoted. If you really, if people are getting nurtured, and life happens. Pandemics, international pandemics happen, but still, people should have the resources and time to do the stuff that that we exist for. So, we used that data soon after the dashboard existed and and was uh, in decent shape. We used it to have a very difficult conversation with a chair, and ultimately removed that chair yeah. because none of their people were getting promoted, and they were riding them like you know workhorses. And, and you know, you dig beneath the surface, and you discover the, these folks are just clinical machinery. They might as well be in private practices. They're not getting a chance to do anything they want, and the chair doesn't care. They're all you know, the, the chair was getting incentivized. There were perverse incentives in the system, and so. When we recruited the new chair, we made sure that they were an expert at, at other missions, had, had written themselves, were interested in research, and could nurture and mentor faculty to do other things. So, this is a really long-winded way of saying that having radar matters. That having that data matters. It's a way of cutting through folks who are who are just charismatic and really getting somewhere. Um, and and now we're extending that. You know, I've started doing this work at some other institutions, just looking at burnout across. And all the causes of burnout, because we know there's a lot of different doors into that room, um, and providing leaders with data um, in the same way, so that you can tell what's burning our folks out, because it's not all the same things, you know, by specialty, it's, it's often a lot of different things, and those details really matter. So, um, you know, my main take home today is, to the degree that you can cultivate local data to inform the things that matter. Um, our offices often need to be the ones that really carry that ball.
1: Whew. All right. Dan, amazing as usual. And there's so many layers to what you just kind of laid on us. Can I just ask you a couple questions for people who may be listening to this and are at diff- different levels and may be curious because we don't have a lot of time to go into all of this, but I hope you're going to be talking about some of this stuff at the next double AMC group on faculty affairs, professional development conference, if not at a session, at least with some virtual wine around the virtual room. Mm-hmm. So the layers I'm hearing are at least four. Culture, because I'm thinking at this layer, maybe like I'll ask you to pick whichever one you want to talk about to go a little bit more deeply. So for higher level leaders, there's this culture of the. I'm imagining a dean who is very she or he is very aware of the um, the Darth Vader black hole departments. So when you talk about this proportional distribution of you know information or expectations, I'm imagining that while we'd like to think that all faculty should have equal opportunity naturally to progress and do their research and and their teaching and build programs the dean knows, and the, and the directors, the, the chair people know that there are different expectations for different departments. So to kind of across the board say that all faculty have to have equal access to this, this these resources and opportunities, the truth of the matter is, though, that uh, neuroradiologists have to read films. I mean, they're just, and they have to, so it's hard for them to do research because we expect them to be the workforce, as you're saying, and we are, um, the research mission can get kind of lost there. So the one layer is this culture of, is it a wink and a nod? How do you address the fact that we are all aware that we're not, this is not a democracy here. And these departments have different levels of wealth and opportunity, and just by virtue of their clinical practice, especially they're not all equal. So that's one layer. I'm just going to, and I'll try to be briefer with the other ones because I didn't have a chance to think about this very clearly. But anyway, culture. Um, leadership. I like the idea. I'm thinking about, this is the other topic, is just leadership in general. At, at Hopkins, we have an advisory board of the medical faculty. The dean meets and the provost every month with all the department chairs. And they get, you know, all this, me- this messaging just bombarded at them, you know, universally across the path, thou shalt look at faculty salary equities, thou shalt do annual reviews, thou shalt do this. And they're all, I'm imagining, but they're not in practice taking notes. Oh my gosh, I got all these things to do. Across the board, even Stephen, you know, we're all doing the same stuff. When in fact, they know some of those department directors are sitting there and going, I can't do this. I can't, this is impossible. How can I promote all my faculty? Who's going to pay for their salary? Um, they're raising salary. I-, I-, I can't afford to then when they get promoted, get a bump up in salary. How am I going to Cross that out. Uh, The whole operations and metrics around this of getting those people together at the table and all that work, you said, for a one-page dashboard, that that radar, um, that level of how do you how do you get that to happen? And that was obviously a big lift. And then from the faculty perspective, this is the last part of this is yeah, will these data be used against me? That's what we're seeing sometimes at you know at Hopkins on the heel under the pandemic. Faculty are saying great that you want to maybe provide me an opportunity to put an impact, a COVID impact statement in my promotion packet to say, this is why I couldn't do this and such, but are you going to hold this against me in a year or two, you know, and say, well, you weren't really productive. So what's up with that? So there's that fear and mistrust, maybe which all leads up to the culture. Let's say maybe four things that I'm hearing from all this great um, stuff. What are you have? Thoughts, please. <laughs>
0: so the the first part just the logistics of getting the thing off the ground in the beginning we did it by hand and then ultimately we had um you know automatic feeds from finance automatic feeds um from from research affairs and so and like publications and totals and that sort of thing started we uh, upload from centralized databases so it was really getting these things we happen to be using click which is a kind of data accumulator and so we have now this is a pretty complex dash that takes information from a variety of places and harvests, sweeps it in and harvests it, so you can you can drill down. I don't think anyone is expecting um, every faculty member to have the same portfolio. A faculty don't want that, and B we wouldn't be able to function if that's what we did. Right? If we have neurosurgeons doing all of our teaching um, and still wanting the salary of a neurosurgeon, I think we recognize that that's not realistic. And sometimes we do make sacrifices. Like if we have someone who has an incredibly high salary, it's also NIH funded. I think we all recognize that there's going to be a gap between the NIH cap and and what we can pay folks. And so we're constantly making those balancing, you know, and we, a lot of us know that some primary care specialties aren't going to cover themselves financially, but we try to benchmark to say, look, here, here's the level of productivity we expect. And in some places you know, that's accumulated so that everyone gets the same salary. In other places, it's partially RBU based But that's we're not arguing that everything needs to be exactly equal. But we are saying that if, on the whole, a department or an institution isn't functioning across missions, then we really do have a problem. We're not living up to our, our reason for existing. And for those of us that are land-grant institutions, it means we're really not contributing to the public good in the way we promised in regards to the question you asked about data being used against us um you know the first thing we encountered was some people holding data who don't want to release it because they're the go-to person for the data and they're like what will my existence look like as a bureaucrat if no one needs me anymore if you can just pull up all the data i have that make me special in this shapiro damn dashboard what what am i going to do all day <laughs> right so that we had to overcome that that people's importance isn't just based on their ability to keep their elbows high and prevent other people from reading the data. So that was one of the things we needed to get over. In terms of people being worried about the data being used against them, I, I mean, I think that's that's real. We are partially trying to create more accountable organizations from top to bottom so that we're less unfair, right? That, it, it's, that the people who are charismatic aren't the ones that get all the resources. And our hospitals are pretty good at measuring productivity. Um, So that data has already existed. We're just trying to catch up on the faculty affairs side to say, hey, we can actually measure the other things that matter too, to compete with that. So that's not the only, you know, we're we're taking people who've been acculturated since they were in high school to get a grade. Mm. And if the only thing I'm grading you on is your clinical productivity and you're getting no grade on the other side and no one's talking to you about it, well, we can tell what you're being held accountable for and we know how you're going to respond to that. So we're just... We're just trying to balance the ledger, but it, it is true. There are times when the data suggests, oh, wow, look, these folks aren't, they're not working you know as hard as we need them to, huh. or they're not producing or they're not getting the resources they ought to be getting uh, from the chair level. It's a really nice way of taking a look at how talented chairs are. You know, we have annual conversations between the the chair and the Dean. And let me tell you really quickly, just how those are organized. The first we, we do 360s of all of our chairs also. Um, so, and vice deans like me have a 360. The dean has a 360. So, we all do those, and my office is responsible for those. Um, so, the first 20 minutes of a, a one hour meeting is reviewing the 360 and the chair's response to their 360, which is also electronic. And they have a conversation about that. And then the next 40 minutes, other people pop into these meetings. And I'm using that to describe, you know, obviously a zoom and that's the president of the hospital, the finance, the vice dean for research, vice dean for education. And we have a conversation with the chair that is data-based across a SWOT analysis that includes its SWOT and our dashboard data so that we have a substantive conversation about what's coming next year. Um, that's time intensive. Obviously it takes a lot of preparation to, to do these things. Just doing the three sixties by themselves is a lot of work, but. I'm finally seeing the kinds of substantive conversations between deans and chairs because of this, that, that I, that I was missing when I was a chair myself that I felt like. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think all of this work does pay off for our institutions.
1: Mm -hmm. And do the faculty themselves have access to this dashboard? No, they don't. So they
0: have access to parts of it, right. They can see their own productivity they can see their own financial contributions they they can see their RVUs they can they know their own scholarship but they're not seeing themselves compared to a whole bunch of other faculty or um how their chair you know they're not seeing their chairs 360 they're not seeing things like that
1: no i imagine that that, that wouldn't make sense either but this i like how um this balancing the ledger keeping to the promise because you're right if this is the the challenge I I see in faculty development anyways, that a lot of what we want to impact is long-term, right? So if we're developing faculty members as they roll into our institution, welcome to the family. This is how, this is our culture. This is how we live around here. This is how we do things. And here are some resources and tools and programs and policies to help you exceed your wildest expectations And then a new dean comes along and says, what's that faculty development office doing? I don't, doesn't HR do a lot of that? Or don't you have an organization development group that does that? What is, why do you need faculty development? Their professional societies do those kind of things for them. And so that's, to me, always been a a tough nut to crack when you get down to data, because how do we demonstrate impact when, yeah, there are initial changes in knowledge, attitudes, or skills, maybe some intermediate impact. Outcomes like behavior change, but to actually have that change in condition or status, that can be five, six, seven, eight, nine years down the road. And then is that a little bit too little, too late? So that kind of lead that observation leads me to your dashboard. That are these data, you know, the canaries in the coal mine? You got a problem, you know, Houston. You're not getting your women promoted, or you don't have enough underrepresented in medicine. You know, there's no diversity here. in time, do they get the data in time to be kind of? Uh,
0: well, it's like, I right? mean, it's a conversation every year. Like the diversity question is something that we, we have all of that data and we go through it annually now. So your number of underrepresented in medicine, your percentage of underrepresented in medicine by rank. So we know that, you know, the, the demographics are changing. So, but what we want to see is that trending in the right the right direction and it gives a chance for a chair to talk back also it gives them a chance to say yeah we had you know we we had a a great pool of candidates for our most recent tenure track position and um you know i had a committee made up of a really diverse group and they picked this person who wasn't diverse and so you know that's why i'm in this situation i'm uh, i'm in right now and they're turning out to be dynamic and great so but it's at least there's um it, it The dean and the chair aren't flying blind. They're having an informed conversation, at least. Um, And I I don't think leadership can be paint by numbers. I think these are complicated. But it's also a chance, because I'm in the room during these conversations, for me to say, um, hey, how how are you investing in your people in terms of, you know, and I know it's complicated as a chair because you're pulled in a lot of different directions. You're getting all this COVID guidance. We're making you jump through all these hoops and this bureaucracy and all this other stuff. But tell me what your development plan for all of your assistant professors and you brought in these four people in the last year. What what are they up to? Are they, you know, don't forget Jen McCall Hosenfeld's junior faculty development program. You've got a couple of associate professors that could do her associate professor program. So, you know, it's just built into the nomenclature now Mm -hmm. and that, you know, is part of those conversations.
1: Are you seeing, um, Impact on faculty morale at Penn State? That have you seen any shift obviously in accountability and kind of leveling the playing field? So these charismatic people don't carry the room and carry all the weight. But so I imagine you're there's a different feel in the room with this heightened level of accountability and responsibility. And I'm wondering if that trickle effect has gotten to the faculty where they're like, no, this feels more transparent to me. Is there, do you have any gauge of um no, know, un- unanticipated benefits of this. Um, it's database. a
0: great question. I wish I could answer that, but being a data hound, I don't think I can because so much has happened. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think this is an incredibly difficult time to be a chair. I think it's hard to be an academic medical leader in any role right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the patients coming to see us are grumpier. Our faculty are grumpier. You know, the depression rates and some of the burnout evaluations I've done. In terms of using a brief depression screener, it's like in the thirty percentile range. Like when before the pandemic, it was around ten percent, and that's that's a really large percentage of people who are struggling. The sleep deprivation, the you know difficulty sleeping, um, people feeling like they have physical responses to stress every week, um, depression, the substance use is higher among among faculty. At least that's what we're measuring. Um, And so you've got these chairs who didn't train to be mental health professionals who are trying to keep, you know, keep up with the guidance around vaccines and, and coverage and in a, in a complicated environment. So it's hard for me to say that it's trickled down. I think it is making the chairs, um, it's aiming them better. And, um, I think our chairs are, um, more attuned to their own data, but, um, it's a tough time to measure it.
1: Can I ask you one, one final question, Dan, I um, just kind of want to noodle this around with you. So we all love, um, I'm also a data, data doggy. I love a data doggy is what I'm saying. Data, data hound. I love data. And I'm, I'm all about metrics and measuring and have been steeped in quantitative methodology from my sociology and epidemiology background. I get it. I love it. We need it. And yet, I feel I'm putting myself in the shoes of faculty members who everything is about you know, measuring and checking boxes and the annual review and going up for promotion and how many papers do I need and how many grants do I need and how many RVUs and how many encounters do I need to close and how many windows up have to click. And I went to get a mammogram a month ago and the poor technician before I even got to the squishy machine clicked 72 times. I was counting because I'm a counter also, little OCD with counting. And I was like, one, two, three, four, five. I said, do you realize that you just clicked that mouse 72 times and I'm not even over to that machine yet? She said, oh, that's nothing. When you leave this room, I got a lot more clicking to do. And so all I'm thinking is the, the burden on faculty members of, yeah, this is great. I love the transparency. I love that this makes this whole process kind of blows things open about measuring things. And yet, For crying out loud, where back to what you said, Dan, the promise. Where's the promise? I came here to do science, to discover, to create, to cure, to, you know, to teach, to analyze. And I'm I'm spending my day doing things that are clicking. I'm clicking, clicking, clicking because I'm looking at the metrics. Am I hitting my numbers every day? And whatever those numbers are. So how do we as leaders find that sweet spot of? metrics and data and dashboards and measuring stuff and making sure we're mindful of the promise of why we're here. And sometimes is that is it kind of like a faith thing where some things you just can't measure how much you thought today about that hypothesis? I mean, where does it how do you balance
0: that? So the, the dashboards I'm describing are really designed to change chair slash dean behavior to get to hold chairs accountable for nurturing the kinds of things faculty want to spend more time doing, right? I mean, that's really what this is about. It's measuring things like it's having an easy way to see the the funding of the department, the research funding. Um, It's an easy way to see the publication output um, and the number of uh, applications that are going out, grant applications. So it's designed to change how chairs are measured and how they think about their behavior. It's a little less about. about faculty, but your, your point is a good one when it comes to faculty clearly not everything that counts can be counted first of all, and I think good leaders know that. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that from the burnout work I'm doing um, on the side, there was a lot of work in most systems to do around uh, the experience of feeling respected as a faculty member. Who screens your my chart messages, for example, your patient portal messages. Um, how much time are you spending interacting with insurance companies? Do, does your organization have a bureaucracy reduction team? You know, every bureaucratic idea was once a great one. Huh. You know, um, hey, we should have three or four people sign this international travel request form just to make sure everyone's in the loop. At one time, that was a great idea. Yeah. Until you you realize that no one has not signed one of those things up, but the first person signs it ever. And so you could get rid of that. You know, you know what I mean? Like simplifying, getting rid of. so. Yeah, I think your point is a good one. I don't think the dashboard is, I think the dashboard is actually encouraging better faculty vitality, even though it is, you know, data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: the, it's never ending challenge. Again, to me, it's all about balance. And I, during this pandemic, you know, we, we our minds are on the faculty and making sure that we as leaders are delivering on the promise, despite this little hiccup and understanding that we've all had to kind of pivot a bit But hopefully that we can deliver by providing resources and demonstrating that the data help us to see truth, you know, versus these ideas that maybe leaders have. And some of the truth can fly against those people who have the charismatic persona and these false beliefs of what they're doing and then not doing. So that I think is so important about good leadership is getting to truth and clarity. Fantastic, Dr. Dan Shapiro. Um, as usual, always have lots of smart ideas. Would you like to leave with any parting thoughts? And I promise I won't say anything.
0: Oh, just to all, our, all of our colleagues out there. Can't wait to see you in person. Keep up the great work. Your, your jobs are so important given how droopy everybody is right now. And um, personally, I, I'm fed by our colleagues. I, I feel like the, the Graduate Faculty Affairs Group is my intellectual home and uh, I miss all of you and can't wait to see you in person.
1: That's it. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions.